Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, for some, February is all about chocolate, but for the hop-obsessed, February is all about the sweet, sweet bitterness of Plenty the Younger. Websites and tweet storms flash the latest kegs being unveiled, like the appearance of a Wonka hoppy ticket. But for those of us unable or unwilling to jump through the hoops for hops, no worries. We're going to break down how to make your own Plenty Younger-inspired clone with Craig Chaplin and his stellar process for dropping hop bombs right from a tap. But first, a message from our sponsors. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world. Providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. What else have you been brewing? Nothing. <laughs> Once you find something you love, you stick with it. Well, and I think that's a perfectly good way for us to start talking. Mr. Chaplin, introduce yourself to the audience. My name is Craig Chaplin. I'm a Maltose Falcon and an avid home brewer. Yes, and, and now Mr. Craig won Trick Pony, but it's a hell of a trick. <laughs> well, like I said, Drew, we're going to be talking about this triple IPA, but uh, once you taste it, uh, it's hard to go with anything else. Let's set the stage. Uh, for listeners, we have just recently survived what I like to think of as the period of plenty. 
<laughs> the onslaught. We were talking about plenty of the younger, obviously, uh, Vinny and Russian Rivers, uh, super hyped, super beloved, super once a year triple IPA that, you know, I don't know, people raffle tickets for, or, you know, some places it's just a massive line. You wait for four hours to get a little eight ounce pour. Craig, you were not satisfied with the idea of just having plenty once a year. No, no. I had actually been brewing my clone of Elder for several years, and that's what got me started uh, using some of the techniques Vinny uses, which is like hop extract. Right. And then once I tasted Plenty the Younger, I was absolutely blown away by how delicious it was. I hadn't experienced anything like that. And that was about probably four years ago when I first got to taste it. So I thought to myself, you know, I can either wait once a year to have this delicious beer, or I can try and make it. Right. And so somewhere in that homebrewer's arrogance, you went, I, I know what I'm going to do. I can do that. <laughs> so how long had you been brewing before you know, this Plenty Obsession hit? I had been brewing probably for about 12 years. Mm-hmm. What got you started? What got me started was my wife bought me a Mr. Beer kit. How much does she regret that? <laughs> Considering now three quarters of the garage is full of beer equipment, my backyard has a fermenter in it, a brewing system, and uh, she regrets it a great deal. <laughs> but yet, delicious beer. Well, I don't, I don't buy beer anymore. You know, I've got twelve beers on tap at home, so that's the advantage of being a home brewer. You can make anything you want. And so now you decide you want to make plenty. Well, let's let's talk about plenty. I mean, there is a world of triple IPAs now. There when is. when plenty of first hit, the younger first hit. Mm-hmm. It was a, a triple IPA. was kind of like a, I mean, people were still having a hard enough time adjusting the idea of a double IPA. Right. And it was a big beer hanging up there. Yeah. And so what plenty is 10 and a half? 10.5 usually. 10 and a half. It varies from year to year. Golden, hoppy monster. What, what in your mind makes a good triple IPA? Because I, there, I've had a number of commercial triple IPAs and not all of them have been anywhere good. No. No, not even close. In my mind, what makes a good triple IPA, the characteristic that you need, is you need dryness in the finish. Because the feature about a triple IPA is the hop. You know, malt, you know, is secondary. It's somewhat to to get, you know, a little bit of backbone to that strict hop bitterness. But the star of the show is the bitterness. Now, what happens with the triple, and this is something that, that I've discovered is the higher the alcohol you have in this triple IPA, the more balanced it tends to be because that alcohol adds a sweetness. Yeah. So in almost replacement of using like a lot of crystal in the malt bill, use this out high alcohol to get that sweetness. Well, and I remember the very first versions of Younger that I had, they did feel very sweet. Yes. And knowing Vinny's you know, obsession with good fermentation, it always felt puzzling to me until I learned that ethanol has a sweetness to it. Right, exactly. And so what happens when you then swallow that that sip is you get an immediate dryness because the alcohol just dissipates very quickly once you swallow. But you've got that residual hop flavor that's left after that alcohol just disappears. And that hop flavor, when you brew it, and I'll give my recipe shortly, but when you brew that beer, what's left on your tongue is just that pure hop flavor, the oils, the richness of that hop. And I think that's what makes a classic triple IPA. Well, I think one of the tricks and I think one of the evolutions of Younger has been I mean, when it first started, I always felt like Elder gave a better hop experience. Right. Yeah, like mm-hmm. it was it was more that classical, like, you know, bite you in the face, you know, you know, hang on to your nose type of uh, type of bitterness. And younger to me felt like 
more barley wineish, more Swedish. And I've noticed that over the years it's evolved mm-hmm. so that now there's even more hop aroma packed in there so that younger delivers an incredible hop experience now. Yes, it does. And it's drier. The last two years it's been much drier than it had in previous years. So having said that's what makes a good triple IPA. Mm-hmm. I think we can very safely say the bad ones, almost inevitably, it's Way too much malt, way too much sweetness. It's a malt sweetness, which that is, it almost tastes like under attenuation in a beer, but it's actually just that crystal flavor, which, like I said, a triple IPA, you're not looking at a a complex malt bill. You're looking at featuring the hop. So crystals don't belong, I don't think, in the grain bill. Even to the point, how how many pounds of pale malt does your does uh, Craig's Old School use? Okay, Craig's Old School, which is... um, I would say intended to start at about 1,100 in starting gravity. At 10-gallon batch, I use 30 pounds of two-row. I use one pound of Maris Otter, and I use two pounds of wheat. But even then, just from that that massive malt that you're talking about, just pale malt even, mm-hmm. you know, and what, that's like 16, uh, 15 and a half pounds for a five-gallon batch? Yeah, roughly, yeah. So 15 and a half pounds of pale malt, even then, is still going to give you some oomph some uh, you know some additional kind of heft to the beer to start with right and then yeah so even before you go and add anything crystally or caramelly or toasty or whatnot you're already if your goal is to be as pale as possible or as dry as possible you're already kind of behind the eight ball a little bit true you know for years homebrewers and craft brewers were always like oh you know i do everything the right way the old school way everything is oh natural i use hot pellets and and none of this adjuncts and everything else but you can't make this beer, at least not as well as you make it, without going to some of those you know sort of newer fangled techniques, and very particularly talking about the hop extract. Yeah, I don't think I would have tried a triple without having hop extract. I think the amount of pellet hops you would have to get to make this a really bitter experience would have given you way too much plant material. Mm-hmm. And that's what is great about the CO2 extracted uh, hop extract is – it is just almost the pure oils. There's very little plant material in that. So you can use a fairly large amount of it without adding that that vegetal flavor you can get from t- adding too many hops, pellet hops. Right. And then for a commercial brewery like Vinny's, it also has the advantage of I mean, one of the other problems with that much hop matter is that it does soak up wort. So yes. you lose beer to the hops. The, the, the first big example that was regularly available were like the hop shots. Right. Yeah, with the syringes with the syringes with hop extract in it because that was the problem. It doesn't take very much of this stuff to to work, and so it was never really practical at the homebrew level. I know uh, Yakima Valley uh, they sell cans. I think hundred gram right. cans, hundred gram cans of it, and that's where I get mine. Now the the trick about it is there's no varietal on them. There's no nothing. It, it used to say CTZ, and then that changed about two years ago, and it just says just the hop extract, and it's about sixty five IBU per milliliter. So, I mean, it's just really intense hop experience. And in my triple recipe, I use 25 milliliters. Word of warning, word of caution. You open up this can of hop extract and you're effectively faced with tar. It is very thick, very thick. And, of course, the temptation is to take that pinky finger that you got right there next to the open end of the can, dip it into the hop extract because, of course, you're thinking to yourself, this can't be that bitter, and then put it to your tongue. You've done that. It's all you will taste all day is that little dab of hop extract. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's worse than trying to do this with capsaicin, right? You, you go eat a Pepper X or something like that. Yeah, you're going to be in pain for a while, but it'll be gone before too long. That hop extract 
sticks with you. So take it from Craig and I, resist the temptation. Yep. Don't do it. You'll have it in the finished beer in a couple of weeks. So yeah, don't resist that temptation. I mean, you've got that can. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you calculate the IBUs for it? I mean, is it just like you know plugging in like alpha acid and when you talk about the um, the hop shots, the one particular uh, place that I go to when I want to calculate how much alpha acid to use or how much hop extract to use is Northern Brewer, which sells the hop shots. They have at the bottom of the of the page you look at for the hop shot, they have a chart you can print out. That will allow you to calculate how much bitterness you get based on the gravity of the beer and based on how many IBUs you want to build. That's a really good starting point. And so what they what they do, and we'll link this for people to see, is they give you a table that, you know, one column is gravity and then across the, the table is your target IBU level. So if you want 60 IBUs and you're at a, say, 1050, it's telling you for 60 IBUs at 1050, you add six milliliters of the hop extract. Yeah, and now for old school here, the starting gravity, I think you said was what, 1150? 1100. 1100. So 1100, how many IBUs are you targeting? As many as I can get. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say that's 100. And so, I mean, 100 on that table, they're telling you you have to use um, 11 milliliters of hop extract. Right. For a five gallon batch. Yeah. So then for a 10 gallon batch, you would double that. So you would go to 22. I go to 25. I mean, I turn it up to 11. Oh, you are a home brewer. I am. Yeah. I do it because I can. <laughs> what, what, what is subtlety? <laughs> now, once you get over the idea of like, hey, this is somehow cheating, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is just another valuable tool in the arsenal of things. We've talked a lot about using cryo hops, right? You know, cryo hops are kind of a half stage in between there, you know, mm-hmm. except for the cryo hops carry actual varietal components into the beer as well. You know, this, this stuff is mostly just focused on pure, sheer bitterness yeah this is this is the bitter punch for the beer now and this still has to this still has to be boiled right oh yes yeah this is added at the beginning of the boil so 90 minutes i put in the hop extract now even though the hop shots come in those handy little uh, syringes Mm -hmm. i think it's very important that people know because you've you've learned this the hard way that you can't just shoot this hop extract into the into the boil and have it actually dissolve and do its thing. No, what happens is it forms this snake at the top of your boil and it kind of swirls around and it sticks to the side of the pot and it never really dissolves into the beer as efficiently as it should. So what I do, and you and I have spoken about this before, is I go ahead and take a silicone measuring cup, silicone because it's heat resistant, and I go ahead and I'll, I'll add a little bit of Everclear which is the highest alcohol spirit I think you can buy. Right. And depending upon what state you're in, it's 151, 50, 157, yeah, or sometimes 190. California, I think it's, you know, 135. But yeah, I've got, well, last time I was in uh, Nevada, I went ahead and bought some there. It's 195 or 190, something like that. That high alcohol works really well. You're using the alcohol because you want it to serve as a solvent. To dissolve it, yes, exactly. And so what I'll do is I'll set that, that tin of extract next to the burner. You know, as you're filling up the mash tun and you've got a small little fire under the boil kettle, or you're filling up the boil kettle, put that can on right next to that boil kettle just so it can start getting warm. And that, what that does is kind of liquefy that tar. Well, yeah, because otherwise it's molasses. Yes. It's, actually, it's thicker than yeah, molasses. Yeah, you couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't take it out other than like a stick. So what I'll do is I'll get that in a very, very liquid state. And then I have a surgical syringe I got off eBay that can measure out, you know, milliliters very easily. So I put that syringe in there and I go ahead and draw out that 25 milliliters that I want. 
and then I'll inject that into that, that silicone cup that I have full of Everclear. And then I'll take a wooden stick and I'll just stir it up. And you have to stir it probably for, for three or four minutes to get it to really dissolve. And that's even in that high alcohol solution. So, I mean, yes. it's already going to dissolve faster than it would in a boiling wort. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when, once I stir that around, get it in a very you know liquid form, then I can go ahead and add that to the boil can. And then that will phase out into the... Then it just kind of goes into solution. I still get a little bit that'll stick to the walls of the boil kettle, but not as much as if you don't do that. So it's very important to get the most efficiency out of that extract to dissolve it first. Well, and the, and the silicone, as an added advantage, also is much more slippery. It's much more slippery, and you can also dip that into the hot wort yeah, to kind just, of just rinse, get a extra rinse it out. Yeah. Good idea. So now for that, that batch, I mean, we just talked, you got... A hundred mil- gram can or a hundred milliliter can. Right. And you just said for your 11 gallon batch, you're using 25 grams to, or 25 milliliters to get that big push. That still leaves you with 75 milliliters in the can. So what do you do? I go ahead and, and wrap it in uh, plastic film and I keep it in the refrigerator. No, like vodka or anything on top of it. You're not worried about that? No. That is the most ill-tempered thing you can have. I mean, nothing's going to go after it. You know, Romans are afraid of it in the refrigerator. <laughs> it is so bitter that, no, I, I find that, and, you know, I'm brewing this once a month. So within three or four months, I've used that extract. The joke is that every time Craig is sharing something on our Facebook page, you know, oh, I'm brewing today. He doesn't even have to put on there what he's brewing. Everybody just knows, oh, yep, it's another triple IPA. <laughs> well, my wife, keeps going after me saying, you know, why don't you brew something else? You know, I like a red ale and I, I'll, you know, want something, something like that. So once in a while I'll brew something to satisfy my wife, but if it's brewing something for me, it's a triple IPA because I, I, that's all I enjoy drinking. When I have that on tap, I'll only have one a night because it's, it's a pretty big hit. Yeah. But um, that that one a night, I look forward to coming home and really enjoying that. Sit down and, and chew on it for a bit. Yep. You've got the the hop extract in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I assume your your mash, you know, for that that malt that you've got going, you know, all that pale and a little bit of the wheat, no sugar. Uh, let's talk about the mash because I think it's important to understand how you get this big beer dry. Yep. And so the mash is as I said before, 30 pounds of Turo, one pound of Maris Otter, two pounds of wheat. And before I mash in, I'll raise it up to about 150 degrees and I'll put in alpha amylase, okay. which is an enzyme that you can get. But, uh, by the way, this is now the third straight episode of The Brew Files, I think, where somebody has mentioned using alpha amylase enzymes. So yep. you're using like uh, White Labs Ultra Firm or using... I'm using with the shop. Yeah, they, they have Amylo 300. So, right. yeah. Yep, that's what I'm using. So I'll, I'll mix that in the mash. It kind of creates an odd aroma. It's a little frightening when you use it the first time because when you mix it into that that hot water um it develops this kind of weird aroma but it's okay you forge forward <laughs> can, can you, when you say weird what do you uh, mean well, trying to describe what kind of aroma i would say it's it's kind of a rubbery kind of kind of aroma it's just so something you, phenolic you, yeah phenolic you, you wouldn't associate it with something you want in a beer right. but it's there for a purpose and we'll talk about that so i go ahead and then once i mix that in then i'll go ahead and mash in and this is and, and your target's 150. My target's 145. So I mash in water sitting at 150, 151. Mash in by the time I stir in all that grain, which there's a lot of grain. When I stir all that in, then once I, you know, am done with the raking and stirring around, it's usually between 145 and 146. Well, that's not actually so only like a 5 to 6 uh, temperature drop. That's right. 
That's actually pretty nice. I usually calculate it somewhere closer to 10. Yeah, no, this is this is a pretty efficient system. Of course, I heat it up to that 150 strike with a burner under the mash tun. So there's a lot of heat. All right, so we, we've got our, our mash rust at 145, 146 mm-hmm. with the, the amlo in there. Yep. Everything's happily munching along, chewing, 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 trying to make a lot of simple shorter. For one hour. Okay. For one hour. In the summertime, I don't have to do much. In the wintertime, when it's so cool, I may have to recirculate. I have a Herms-based system. So I may have to recirculate to make sure I stay close to 145. And for listeners who don't know, Herms is basically, you know, you put a copper coil or some sort of metal coil in your HLT and you recirculate the mash liquor through that copper or through that metal coil in the HLT so it can gently pick up heat from the HLT and return that into the mash. It's a, a, another way of doing temperature control. Uh, very straightforward for people to set up. So totally a thing to explore, but that's a Herms, which is also the reason why your nickname is Herms Man. Yep. <laughs> it's what I've been doing almost from the beginning. So very efficient system. And you can change temperature, so you can do step mash. It's pretty easy. Yep. So I'll do 60 minutes at 145, and then I'll go ahead and increase the temperature to 156. So I'll recirculate, get it up to 156, and then I'll do a 20-minute rest at 156. The reason I do that is I'm too lazy to do an enzyme or a, a test for whether you have conversion. So by raising it up to 156 and just recirculating for 20 minutes, I know I have conversion. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you could you could be efficient or you could just be lazy. And be lazy. I'm fine with that. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm, I tend to be on the lazy side, but it well, works for me. You have, a, you have a process here that, that's been working for you. So you, you, now that you know the magic formula, don't breathe. Yep, yep. Don't change anything. So I'll do a 20-minute rest at uh, 156, and then I'll go ahead and mash out and bring it up to 168. And then at 168, I go ahead and just use hot liquor water to rinse out the coils of the Herm system, get it all back into the mash kettle. And then I'll go ahead and start a Vorloff that is strictly from output mm-hmm. to input, recirculate for 20 minutes at 168 okay. to make sure I get the grain bed set. And then I'll go ahead and start running off into the boil kettle and I do fly sparging. So then I'll do a runoff first two or three gallons and then go ahead and hook up the hot liquor tank, let it kind of slowly get just above the grain bed, and then I'll do that for an hour. Okay. So, I mean, you've got a pretty long and intense mash going for this. And again, your whole point is at least initially try and drive as much simple sugar creation as you can, and then finally to ensure your conversion and then fix the mash and then maximal extraction. True. And so then we go into the kettle. We're filling up the kettle. I first ward hop. I use an ounce of Chinook and an ounce of Warrior. So I'll go ahead and put those in a little hop bag and I'll start to run it over those hops. And at that point, the boil kettle, although it's still almost completely empty, the aroma is just incredible. That first word hop is a favorite of mine. So then I'll go ahead and run off. And I try and, and time my runoff to be about one hour when I fly sparge. So to to go from the beginning of the runoff to the very last when I shut off the, the output from the mash tun um, and have my full volume, about one hour. Then go ahead and start the boil. And that's where we discussed adding the the hop extract. That's where where you're getting your jet fuel. Yep. And you think you had aroma with the first wart hop. You ought to smell that after you add that hop extract. It's like an explosion of aroma. Very piney and very just, you can almost smell the bitterness in the air. It is so intense. But uh, Stand back. Watch me bitter. And so then I go ahead and uh, 60 minutes... So I, I boil that for 15 at 60 minutes. 
I boil that for 30 minutes. Then at 60 minutes, I'll add... Because we're talking a 90-minute boil. A 90-minute boil. So I'll then at 60 minutes, I will add an ounce of sh- Chinook and an ounce of Columbus pellet. So classic old-school IP, yep. uh, IPA hops. Yep. And then I'll go ahead and continue the boil. And then at 30 minutes, I'll add two ounces of Simcoe. So then we'll continue the boil. And as we near knockout, we're the end of 90 minutes. I will go ahead, and this is what I just started doing with this last batch. I will continue to do that. I turn on, I've got a plate chiller. So I turn on the plate chilling system at knockout. And I start recirculating with water running through that plate chiller. And what I'm trying to do is get the the boil temperature down from 212 down to 170-ish. Yeah, you're you're wanting to do a cool whirlpool. Right, exactly. And so I did that this last time. I was very pleased with the outcome of that. And what I do then when I've got it down to 170 is I will add an ounce of Cryro Simcoe, two ounces of Amarillo, two ounces of Centennial, one ounce of Chinook, one ounce of Warrior. So I add all that into the boil kettle at 170 degrees. Just a tiny bit of hop in here. Yeah. And then I, uh, I recirculate in that whirlpool for about 20 minutes. So, tw- uh, so a 20-minute whirlpool with a good ton of hops at 170 right. just to get maximal extraction and hopefully preserve more of the essential oils. Yeah, the oils and the flavors. And then once I've completed that, then I go ahead and turn the water back on because I have to shut the water off so it doesn't go at a lower temperature. So I shut the water off, let it complete, you know, still whirlpool, recycle through the plate chiller, but without the water running, it's not lowering the temperature anymore. So then I go ahead and start the water again, get everything nice and cool. And then I go ahead and disconnect from the uh, whirlpool recirculation connect it to my conical in the uh, refrigerator in the backyard. And then I start the runoff and I run it through an oxygen stone so I can oxygenate on the way to the conical. And so I go ahead and, and fill up the conical. And the goal at the end of boil, and why the sugar enters the discussion here, is based on the grains that I'm using and the process that I'm using to boil, that should be wort of about 1085, 1082 to 1086 gravity. But like I said, I wanted it at 1100. So what I do is when I run this off, I check what the gravity rating is, and then I'll add just enough cane sugar to bring the starting gravity up to 1100. Now, do you, do you put that into a syrup, or is it just you add it straight? I add it straight, and I add it about day five of the ferment. Okay. So when I run it off, into the conical that you want a good pitch of yeast. And so I'll run it off in the conical, check my temperature. I want it to be 65 degrees, no higher. So I may have to, refri- you know, turn the refrigerator on and refrigerate overnight, you know, in the summertime to, to get it down to the right temperature. But then I do the yeast pitch. And this is where we talk about the yeast yeah. because this is a beast of a beer. And well, you've got not only the gravity, but you've got also all that hop oil and everything else getting in the way. Yeah. And the yeast are just, you know, they're, they're reluctant unless you put in an army of them. So what I do is several ways that you can do this, right? You could make a starter, right? But I don't recommend that. It'd have to be at least a one gallon starter with four packs of yeast at minimum. And so that's kind of an expensive way to go. But if, you know, it's the only way you have to do it, you could do it that way. You could brew a a pale ale, like a 1050 beer, you know, and then use that yeast cake from that pale ale. Which is the thing that we've recommended all the time. Oh, yeah. That's commonly. Or you can do what I do, and that's make friends with brewers. I've got I've got four people on my cell phone that I can text at any time saying, hey, are you dumping any yeast this week? Everybody brews with 1056 or 001 or 090 
I'll, I'll text them and say, are you dumping any yeast? And these breweries dump more yeast than they actually can use. Mm-hmm. So they're almost always dumping yeast if they're, you know, moving it from their, their fermenter to their bright tank and they'll just dump that cone. And what we've always recommended to people in the past is if you, if you go and do this, you know, got call ahead, see if anybody's there, recognize that your item 120 on a list of a hundred things that have to be done today. Yep. Come with everything ready to go, sanitized, growler, et cetera, and then be patient, buy a beer at the bar, and just just wait so that you can get the yeast and be kind because they're yep. doing you a huge favor. Yep. It, it helps if you go in there and they see more of you than just wanting something. Yep. So I recommend going in, making friends with them, bring in your homebrew, let them try it, you know, talk them up about how you, your love of beer and just try and, you know, just you know, make friends with these guys. And uh, I know three or four that I've done that with that they're awesome people. They help me out a lot. I help them by bringing in beers or, you know, we talk process. Although some pros don't like to to really have a homebrew tell them about processes, but where I've learned so much about this hop extract, you know, I can really, you know, teach a lot of people about, you know, my techniques for doing it. Yeah. We get big yeast pitch. We get that going. You get nice, healthy fermentation. Are you are you constantly controlling the temperature to keep it down around sixty five? Yes, or are you like- I'm, I'm controlling it to keep it down around sixty five, and I use a thermal well in my conical, so I've got pretty well can monitor what the beer is at, not just the environment. Okay, and then after the after those first five days of fermentation, mm-hmm. and it's interesting doing that first bit at lower gravity. Obviously, you're going to get more hop extract to start with, but yeah, you're giving your yeast a slightly more friendly environment. Mm-hmm. So day five, you figured out I need. A pound, a pound and a half pound of sugar. And a half of sugar. Yeah. And then you, so you just take a measure out a pound and a half of sugar, open up the conical and stream it in. Yes. I'm surprised that you don't get any like uh, nucleation explosions or have oh, you. Oh, do you? Oh, do you? I, this is something where you, I've learned very quickly that I have everything lined up. I've got, you know, a, a sanitized paper towel where I can put the, the lid when I take it off the conical. I always position it when I take it off the, the, the conical so it's, it's ready to go back on. Mm-hmm. And so I go ahead and I'll spray down sanitizer around the surface there. I'll take this bag and I just use a plastic bag, dump it in, and then I've got to get that back, the, the lid back on the conical quickly and get it sealed before that nucleation can just create this frothing of foam out of the conical. Have you ever tried to take and make a syrup, you know, just like a real concentrated syrup and use that instead, or are you well, worried that it would just sink? Remember that Remember that part of where I said I'm a lazy brewer? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Actually, I know some breweries that do this, that they do make a syrup. They're, they're afraid of putting straight you know, sugar into their fermenter. Well, they got a bigger, they've got a much bigger problem than, than you do. Yeah. Yeah. For me to dump 10 gallons, I'll cry, but it's not a financial hit for them. It's a financial hit. Yeah. I mean, they, they run enough of a risk with dry hopping and you can see all sorts of videos on the internet of messed up dry hops with beer shooting out of tanks before anybody can close anything down. So, yeah. So we get day five, we get the sugar in, we pray that, we pray that everything's pressure safe and that, that you get the lid on fast enough. Okay. And then I'll go pop up the temperature to 67. Okay. So I give it a little more temperature to get everything active again, because I want the yeast to go after that sugar. I want them to continue to finish the malt, but at day five of fermentation with that much yeast that you pitched, you're pretty well done pretty close to being done. So day five, you do the, you do that sugar pitch. How many more days before, uh, before your fermentation is done? Typically it's only three or four more days. Yeah. And then 
are you doing your dry hop with yeast still in there, or do you? You're, you said you're in a conical, so yeah. are you effectively going to secondary by by dumping dumping yeast in true and then starting your dry hop? No, nope, I don't. I don't mess with the yeast at all. I just leave it in the bottom of the conical and I start adding dry hops. So, but you wait for fermentation to uh, subside. Nearly done. Yeah, not completely done, but nearly done. So, so I do I do two hop additions for dry hops. Yeah, so I was gonna say let's let's, let's get into that. the craziness. Yeah. Okay, so for the first dry hop that I put together, it's two ounces of Amarillo, one ounce of the Cryro Simcoe, two ounces of Warrior, two ounces of Centennial, and two ounces of Columbus. That's the first dry hop. That's nine ounces of nine ounces of hops? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And it would be interesting because, you know, we've been talking on the podcast about the new stuff coming out of uh, Tom Shellhammer, the OSU, and he's been talking about dry hopping rates where – in the studies that he's done, if once you cross a certain threshold, and I think the magical threshold is somewhere around three to four ounces for five gallons, you start to extract more tea-like flavors and you know less good stuff. And yeah, you're you're well over that line, buddy. But the, the beer still comes out amazing. So it'd be interesting to see. If, I almost wonder if you did old school with a slightly pared back dry hop schedule, how that would change things. But yeah, well, I've read that article too, and so I think the next time I brew this, which is likely to be next weekend. Um, I probably will use less hops in the dry hop. Don't tell Jim Warren. No, no, he, he'd be very unhappy about that. All right. So second dry hop. Now, so the first dry hop is on, is in the beer for how long? It's in the beer for, it's going to end up being about 10 days. And the second one goes in about three days later. Okay. And so it's only going to be in the beer for then about, you know, six days or five days. So we got dry hop one at, at day zero, effectively three days later, dry hop two, dry hop two is one ounce of warrior. Uh, one ounce of the Cryro Simcoe, one ounce of Amarillo, one ounce of Chinook, one ounce of Columbus, one ounce of Warrior. So another six ounces of hops. Yes, another six ounces of hops. Hop growers must love you. Okay. <laughs> it is not an inexpensive beer to make. Well, but in comparison, in, in fairness, as we talk about with homebrewing, yeah, the initial investment's not cheap, but then you go and you take a look at like, how much would it cost you to go buy, you know, if plenty of the younger were available all the time, how much ten, that would cost you to yeah, buy? Yeah, 10 gallons of buying, uh, which essentially be uh, two sixtals, right, of plenty of the younger. I think that they go somewhere around $175 a sixtal. If you can get your hands if on If you it. can get it. Yeah, you can't get it, but that's around what it sells for. Yeah, once you look at the, the cost that way, it starts to make sense. As long as you don't screw it up, but you've had enough time and experience yeah. to do this. Well, so now that we've talked the recipe, why don't, we, why don't we actually try the beer? We do actually have some beer here. Craig, please do the, the honors. and nothing, nothing like starting your day off with a triple IPA. It can be a day ender. Yeah. This, as I say, this is my starting gravity is about uh, eleven hundred on this. The finishing gravity on this batch is about one oh oh eight. So this is about a twelve point five percent alcohol. It's a breakfast beer, and so what we're faced with is again. Remember, there's no color malts in this, right? You know, I mean, the darkest malt that you have in this is a pound of Maris Otter, you know, or half a pound for a five gallon batch. Correct. And I mean, we have a beautiful deep gold color here, a very bright white, very fluffy head that's. Also very nicely, tightly bubbled. I'm trying to remember, you keg, right? So this was this was filled from the keg. Yes. Really fine bubble, really nice stream to it. Let's see. Now, of course, let's get into the important part. Yeah, and the first thing is, I mean, you, you get hit with all that classic American hop aroma, right? You know, this is, this is not your tropical fruit. This is not, this is citrus and pine. This is straight right in your face, old school IPA hop aroma. Yeah. The actual name of my recipe is old school triple IPA. 
And then when we get into the beer itself and the flavor, and the very first thing I get is I get some of that ethanol sweetness. You know, I get I get something that almost feels like powdered sugar, but I know it's not powdered sugar because we've talked through this. And then everything else on the tongue is just suddenly a wash in hop oil and bitterness and everything else. And then you finally get to the end and you get a little bit of that bright alcohol burn followed by a real bright hot burn. I mean, you feel like hot material in terms of the way that it feels going down your throat. And there's warmth. But if you if you hadn't told me that this was 12.5%, I don't think I would have thought that this was 12.5%. Now, how how old is this particular batch that we're drinking? This is about two months old. So two months old, and then, and it's still powie-zowie right in the face with the, with the hops. Yeah. To kind of, again, set the expectation, this is not an offensive bitterness. This is not so bitter that, that hurts your mouth. This is just the initial punch of hot bitterness from that extract. But then on the, that layering of the flavor of those hops just coats the mouth. Yeah, this is not to use the dreaded uh, and often forbidden uh, balance word here on the podcast. I mean, the hot bitterness is way over the top, but not so over the top that it feels like somebody's running, you know, a rasp over your tongue. Like I don't feel like my taste buds are being assaulted. And what I get is I get an overwhelming amount of hop flavor. But not anything that makes me feel like I, I've got to go, you know, take a big drink of water in order to get my my faculties back. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing. It would be interesting to see. I and mean, since you've obviously, I mean, you're still tinkering with it because now you have the cryo in there. Yeah. Uh, and now we're talking. Okay, maybe another adjustment is to see what happens if the dry hop gets pulled back just a bit. Pull the dry hop back a little bit, which is a change I'm definitely going to do. But there's also something else that I've heard that's new, and that is having a closed fermentation. So completely close up the conical so there's no blow off. There's just relief, release of pressure above any certain pressure level in the conical. So adding like a spooning valve to the conical or something. Exactly. To so that that's in the, on the drawing board. Yeah, and uh, for the audience, if a spooning valve is it's a pressure relief valve that you can set to a particular pressure, and once the environment inside behind the valve gets above that pressure, it off gases to alleviate the pressure. And so, yeah, there are people who've talked about, we've talked with Chris Wright about doing pressure fermentation as well. I imagine here in the particular case of this, it's less about changing fermentation characteristics and more about trying to preserve every last ounce and molecule of hop oil. Yes. Get, keeping the aroma, as much of the aroma as you can. And as well, I kind of want to talk a little bit about how this compares to Younger, which yeah. was the original goal, yeah. was to try and clone Younger. And the reason I call it old school triple and not, you know, plenty of the younger or youngest, I think is what I initially used to call it, is that side by side, mine has a little bit more of a hop punch. Mm -hmm. When you taste younger, younger is kind of a, it's bitter, but it's not a sharp bitterness. It's a very, very mild, you know, balance in that beer, you know, between the, the ethanol and that bitterness that he has in it. But tasting mine in comparison to that, mine has more hop flavor and bitterness up front. I got a chance to revisit Younger this year. I hadn't had it in a few years because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a person who stands in line uh, for things. So, But this year, I, I made a special effort to go do it because I knew I wanted to talk to you about this. And I know you've sat down you know, at the bar, glasses side by side. Of the yes, two. I have. And the thing that I noticed about Younger over time was that Younger had become drier and had become more hop-focused. But yeah, you're right. This uh, Your old school here has has more of a hop slap to it. And there's a little more 
there's a little bit more of that sugary sweetness to to this one that I don't that I didn't get in the younger. Well, remember, younger this year was ten point two five, right? And so this is twelve point five. So th- this is carrying some of that ethanol sweetness yeah. too. But it's it's interesting to note the differences because I mean I remember when you first started to do this, like it, it didn't really you, you weren't quite there, and over time it's dialed in, dialed in, dialed in, and then I remember uh, the last batch that you brought in. And maybe it was this batch uh, fresher. I don't know. Uh, but there was a batch that we tasted at uh, club meeting a couple months ago, and it was just spot on perfect. It was like, okay, I think you've got this. Now, of course, you're still going to play. Yeah. Well, and that was one that was unique in that, I, in fact, I used the alpha amylase in the fermenter. So I did it in the mash, and I did it in the fermenter. And I want to warn people out there, once you get good at drying out a beer, be careful about adding alpha amylase in the fermenter because what I created was a brute triple IPA. Mm -hmm. So my gravity, again, was 1,100 starting gravity, but my ending gravity was 0.996. Yeah, which is absurd. This was just – again, you you had – it was drinkable because of that 14% alcohol, but – after you swallowed what was left in the mouth was was like you had sand on your tongue with that hop flavor it was just so dry yeah i I remember there was that that breath out that it felt like you know you're shooting out hop material because it was it was so incredibly hoppy yeah so you have to be careful about using the amylies but just you know one little packet in the mash is perfect for getting a beer dry Healthy a pitch of yeast, keeping it at 65 degrees during the first four or five days of fermenting allows you to build that alcohol that's not up front in the flavor. You know, if you if you let it go any higher than that, you risk having the off flavor in alcohol that makes it up front and in your face, which would make it a less enjoyable experience. Well, you, get, you get more esters, you get more fusels, you get more, more of that other stuff. I mean, I'm a big advocate for starting your ferments cool, particularly as you go bigger. Yeah. You know, as you're trying to go more outre and, and you know, crazy with what you're doing, a little more restraint in the beginning is a good thing because it impacts your total fermentation characteristics. Yeah. Well, Craig, thank you so much for bringing me this beer, for talking about doing triple IPA. Thank you for being insane enough to do. How many batches of this have you done now? Well, I do. You say you do one. I do three, three or four a year, and I've been doing it for four years. Okay, so you're on like batch twelve, batch Batch thirteen, thirteen. Yeah, and I'm still adjusting and changing and thinking about how. Let me put it this way: People ask me, "What's your favorite beer you've ever made?" And I always tell them, "My next one." Because I'm going to tweak this, I'm going to brew it again, and we'll see. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this attempt to fill your life with a never-ending sea of bitterness. I really can't stress how amazing this beer is and how it's evolved, and knowing Craig will continue to do so. It's a ton of hops. Okay, 14 ounces for 5 gallons. But this is a fun challenge and a way to stretch into the world of hop extracts and enzymes so you should give it a shot. Maybe even a hop shot. Now, how bitter are you going to get? Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every home brewing forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, brewswag.com, code experimental 
Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Wings of Rescue, a private pilots organization that flies shelter dogs from overcrowded shelters to other parts of the country where the shelters are less crowded and they stand a better chance to be adopted. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Reuben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving Experimental Homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Brewer's Publications.